the complexity of a high-speed railway uh, to a standard that's never been delivered in the UK before brings its own uh, uh, levels of, of cost, levels of cost challenge. Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Walmer, an author and journalist who has specialised in transport for the past 30 years. In every episode, we aim to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories, policy developments and interviews across the world of transport. With me is my co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades studying policy developments in transport. So, Mark, what's on the agenda today? Hello, Christian. We're spoiled for choice in this episode for Transport Stories. So we've chosen three really big issues. First of all, we'll look at the report published just today from the House of Commons Transport Committee on the future of self-driving vehicles, an inquiry to which you yourself gave evidence, which was uh, reported to our loyal listeners in Season 1, Episode 9. We'll then look at the rollout on this coming weekend of the 20 mile an hour default speed limit on residential roads in Wales. And then we'll complete our fact-finding tour to the HS2 high-speed rail line construction sites with a a report and recordings from our visit to Old Oak Common in West London. And of course, HS2, almost as ever, has been back in the news. Right, well, let's start with uh, the report on what they call self-driving vehicles. They had actually quite a debate about whether to call them autonomous vehicles or driverless cars or whatever. And they've gone for, I think, what is the right title of self-driving vehicles. Now, the government's been very enthusiastic about this, poured about £80 million into the development of these uh, vehicles. They say let's might well represent the future of motoring that you know these things will become uh, you know common currency within a, a decade or more we'll see lots on the roads and and so on and of course i've always been skeptical having written a book called driverless cars on our road to nowhere so i was very pleased to give evidence to this committee and i'm rather pleased actually that the committee has kind of come up with some pretty a pretty sceptical response to the whole idea. I mean, the, the press release that accompanies the uh, committee report is kind of quite enthusiastic. A quote from Ian Stewart, the chair, saying, well, you know, these are very important. It's uh, driverless cars are at a crossroad and, you know, this is an important moment for them and so on. But when you read the detail of the report, they're actually looking at a lot of the same sort of objections uh, that uh, I have to them, all my really scepticism about whether they really will represent a, a big part of the transport future. So, for example, they, they look at uh, the fact that you'd need quite a considerable investment from uh, local authorities to bring the roads up to standard so there's no potholes and all the signage on the, on the roads uh, is clear uh, and so on. They're also... Uh, sceptical about the safety promises that have been made. As you might remember, there's been a lot of uh, support for driverless cars on the basis that, you know, one and a quarter million people across the world get killed by uh, vehicles every uh, year. 
and uh, that if uh, they were driverless, this number would uh, be greatly reduced. And the report rightly highlights some scepticism about that and about you know exactly how do you measure that. It also highlights uh, the issue, which I think is absolutely the most difficult problem, is the fact, and indeed they quote me on this, you can't have a half driverless car. So uh, if you have lots of kind of driver aids that enable the car to drive itself quite a lot of the time, you still have to remain as a driver alert. When do you intervene and how do you intervene? And do you intervene successfully? Because actually, if you're sort of half dozing off, listening to the radio, even watching a film or God knows what, uh, and suddenly, you know, some car pulls in front of you or there's a cyclist that your car hasn't noticed, you know, how do you then uh, react to that? And, and I think that is the fundamental barrier to it. So we're in a situation where uh, they need uh, legislation, they need uh, a lot more investment in the technology, they need, as the report says, to sort out the conditions on the roads. Um, and essentially, the report is saying, well, we're not going to see many of these vehicles for probably a decade, at least, and then you know, quite possibly more. And, and as you know, Mark, from writing and uh, studying transport for many years, um, who knows what's going to happen in a decade's time. It's a very difficult area to, to predict uh, trends. So, Christian, did you feel, in a sense, vindicated by the committee's recommendations? I felt very pleased with it, actually, because, um, you know, the committee got evidence from, you know, the, the boss of Oxbotica, uh, bosses of various other uh, uh, tech companies that uh, kind of you know been pushing this technology for a long time, um, and uh, the the government has, as I say, been very supportive, and so they heard evidence from ministers, um, and yet they've come up with a very balanced report uh, that you know clearly sets out uh, the problems. Um, what I don't think it does enough of is actually question what, what this £80 million that has been invested in spent on and whether uh, you know it would be better spent on kind of improving bus services, which is my line really on it and something I, I said in a, in a BBC interview uh, earlier to, today about that. Um, you know, why are we investing all this money in a technology that might never happen? And even if it does happen... I'm not sure exactly what the benefits are. The, the, the clear thing is that when I first wrote the book in 2018, and I've written a couple of editions, um, the hype was that, you know, we'll all be in driverless cars in a few years' time and you'll be able to, uh, for example, be taken to work and then you'd send the car off and it would take your uh, kids to school and then, you know, it might even take your grandmother to hospital after that, you know, and, and uh, this is a kind of wonderful kind of uh, innovation. And in fact, we're nowhere anywhere near any of that. Um, it also was going to drive itself home so that it didn't clutter up the town centre, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely. Car parking. And, and that, was a, that was a key idea. And of course, one of the absolute key ideas, which, which again has somewhat collapsed, is that it was going to be shared use. You weren't going to own your car. And the reason why they promoted that idea was because they realised that if they had plenty of cars doing, just as you said, 
kind of taking you to work and then driving back, there would be much more congested. There would be all these cars with nobody in them kind of driving around. So they realised, oh, this is bad. So we, we better say it's going to be shared use. Somebody else would pick up the car and drive somewhere else with it or be driven somewhere else in it. And all this has fallen apart. It's a very funny story in a way, Mark. You know, it's a tragic story because, you know, tens of billions of dollars have been invested in this. And you think if they'd spent this money on bus services in, in American towns, particularly where there's many US cities that don't that don't have any bus services, if they'd spent it on, you know, anything else, trying to cure cancer or whatever, they would be kind of, you know, in a much better place than having invested all this money in a technology that uh, probably is not going to work. But my last point would be about uh, Uber. I mean, uh, that's a very good example. It's Uber was, uh, their whole profit model was based on the idea that they would be driverless, that, that eventually um, they wouldn't need to pay their drivers. Now, I always was sceptical about this for a very practical reason, thinking, well, you're going to put all this kit in it. It's very expensive. Is it really uh, cheaper than having a driver? But And also, I was sceptical about it because... Uber would have had to buy all the vehicles because you can't have an owner driver of a self-driving car. You just, you know, they'd be absolutely pointless. They wouldn't have a job. And I, I remember asking them about this at a conference a few years ago and they said, oh, no, no, we'd lease the cars and it will all be okay and blah, blah, blah. And I was completely sceptical. Uber have completely pulled out this whole idea in the intervening period. They just don't actually talk about uh, driverless Uber anymore and, and they've changed their business model. So, you know, I I feel vindicated by this report and I'm somewhat vindicated that I was on the right side of history over this. We've been talking about the House of Commons Transport Committee report on autonomous vehicles. And of course, both the uh, advocates and the opponents of, of that technology cite the issue of safety as being a very important consideration. Now, road safety is a big uh, driver, if I might use that term, of the introduction on the 17th of September 2023 in Wales of a 20 mile an hour default speed limit on residential roads. Now, um, Christian, this is something you have taken a keen interest in. Oh, absolutely, um, because uh, I, I've been writing a lot about uh, over my career about uh, uh, road safety. I remember kind of writing a whole series in uh, The Independent on Sunday years ago about bull bars and how uh, our campaign actually stopped kind of cars from fitting bull bars, which basically sort of were killing children um, because they're precisely at the height of where... Uh, a, a child might be hit by a car and uh, so yes road safety is something dear to my heart and uh, it improved a lot uh, in the 90s and uh, early 2000s and really went down death rate went down from about three and a half thousand to about 1500 1800 something like that and it's completely stopped since then there's still the, the death rate is is very steady around 15 16 1700 a year across the the UK so clearly some radical measures need to be taken and the 20 mile an hour thing is very important there's this kind of uh, well-known statistic that you know if you uh, uh, hit somebody at 30 miles an hour there's is kind of a, a eight or nine out of ten would be killed 
whereas if you hit somebody at 20 miles an hour, only one out of 10 uh, will be killed. So it's, it's, it's really the big difference. And a lot of cities across uh, Europe have begun to, to uh, uh, have slowed down their limits to, to 30 kilometers an hour, which is effectively uh, just over 20 uh, miles an hour. And, uh, and it has made a big difference. And it's not just about speed, Mark. It's about what I call the urban realm. I mean, you know, there is nothing worse than having a lot of speeding cars driving past you if you're in the local shops or whatever, or just walking down the street. You know, if the cars are going very fast, it's very alienating and, and, and kind of unnerving, particularly if you have children around or, or, or uh, older people or whatever. Um, so just slowing down the cars is all part of maybe a wider thing about we need to live a bit more slowly. You know, the slow food movement, for example. There's, you know, it, it, it's all about kind of, um, I don't know, changing the way we live, going away from this rush, rush, rush. And of course, there's been a real kind of uh, a, a backlash about this. Um, uh, about the, the Welch effort, uh, and particularly Penny Mordaunt uh, has kind of picked up on this. Said, this is madness. You know, this is going to cost the economy uh, uh, millions. Uh, you know, it's going to cause delays across Wales and 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 so on. And you know, this is uh, it's, again, it's part of the cultural wars, but it's it's a completely ridiculous argument. I mean, the notion that. Uh, you know, taking a few seconds or even a couple of minutes longer on your delivery run is really going to affect the economy. Is just a, a, a kind of completely uh, daft way of of of, of looking at uh, life. And so, Mark Drayford, uh, the leader of uh, the Welsh Labour, has uh, been very strong on this, and he's been across the media uh, on this, basically saying, "Look, you know, this will save about ten lives a year, lots of injuries." Um, it, it's uh, you know proved to be uh, worthwhile, and he says that their calculations are that you know it might add twenty or thirty seconds to the average journey, and and of course you know that's completely unnoticeable. So uh, Scotland are looking uh, uh, at uh, imposing the same uh, limit as in Wales, um, and in England too. There's a lot of pressure uh, to uh, adopt a twenty mile an hour. Uh, limit and indeed you know in some urban areas there already is one i mean large parts of london it's 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 20 miles an hour and you know what's interesting initially the police were rather against this and said oh you know it's unenforceable we can't do this um you know we don't want to be involved um and uh, actually uh you know they are now issuing uh, tickets for it um and it has been notified as a cyclist who goes around london all the time it is noticeable that people are driving just that little bit more slowly. Of course, there's some uh, idiots who still think that driving around London should be, uh, you know, part of the uh, a Grand Prix competition. But most of, most people are, are obeying this. Um, and, and basically, it, it's improved not just road safety, but generally the, the feel of living in, 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 a, in a big city. So, um, I think, look, this is history is against the penny mordants of this world. And I think this is going to be universally accepted. Uh, uh, you know, it's something, again, I think the Labour Party could could take on and, and say, well, this is all part of making our cities more livable. There's been a tremendous reaction from our loyal listeners to the report uh, contained in our previous episode 
of the, the first part of uh, the visit that Christian and I made to two of the big construction sites for the HS2 high-speed rail project in England. In this episode, we're bringing you the second part of that visit, where we were hosted by HS2 colleagues and their construction partners to look at the amazing developments in West London associated with the Old Oak Common station, which, as loyal listeners will know, is a vitally important uh, interchange on the HS2 network, but also, of course, for some time is going to be the southern terminus of the HS2 system as well. So, here's our report. We've now come to Old Oak Common, where, of course, a major HS2 project is in train, which uh, actually consists of three different projects, as uh, Hugh Edwards, who's the project director uh, for HS2 Limited here, will uh, explain to us. Hugh, um, take us through what exactly is happening here. Christian, many thanks. Uh, so over the next eight to ten years, uh, we're constructing a super hub here, which, as you quite rightly said, has three constituent parts. There are 14 platforms to build, so it's the biggest thing being built since the Victorian age, uh, and those 14 platforms will be delivered in a phase one and a phase two. The phase one, six platforms below ground, high-speed services from Birmingham and to Euston. So HS2 services at Old Oak Common never come above ground. They arrive in tunnel and they leave in tunnel. How, how deep is that? It's about 18 metres below ground. 80, right. A, uh, one eight. Oh, one eight. 18, right. Uh, and the second phase, the second part of our build is the eight platforms on the Great Western Main Line. So today, as the railway goes past us here at Old Oak Common, it's a four-track railway. That four-track railway gets doubled to an eight-track railway, and every track gets a platform. So the width of the operational corridor, the Great Western Main Line here, eventually will be vast compared to what you see today. And that will take both the Elizabeth Line trains and the Great Western trains. Absolutely. And, and all of them will stop, and Heathrow Express. Heathrow Express. And they'll all stop here. Uh, the the timetabling assumption, the timetable for the, the transport planning and railway planning assumption is that all trains will stop here and the infrastructure and the systems built, so the signalling system, will be designed, RB is being designed and will be built around that premise that allows all services to stop both directions. Okay, and the third part? Third phase, if you imagine Terminal 5, it's a huge gold-wing structure similar to T5 or Stratford Station is another example of a gold-wing structure. A huge roof over the whole thing to create one look and feel across the whole of the station. So, three phases, HS2 box, conventional platforms, big roof over the top. So what is the, the, the size of uh, this site and, and the number of people working on it and, and all that kind of stuff and, and the cost? We've got 1,200 people on site today, but we've got 1,900 people working on the job today. So there are, there are, there are 700 people working off-site across a series of design offices, fabricators, uh, uh, detailed design across, across the Western Europe. Second piece, uh, it's about a 2.5 million build. That's a 2.5 million build, so that's our plan for, for Oldeck. Uh, and, the, and in dimensions, we're talking about a one kilometre site uh, lengthwise and then about a half a kilometre wide at its, uh, at its widest point. 
Now, uh, one, of the, one of the issues is, of course, that the Euston section uh, from uh, east of here basically has been stalled. And I think that has implications for you over the uh, tunnel boring machines, doesn't it? It does. Yes and no. So we're not doing anything here at Old Oak Common that precludes an onward uh, uh, build towards the Euston direction. The biggest implication is that the two tunnel boring machines to be dropped into the east end of the box here, the London end of the box, to tunnel seven kilometres to Euston. They will still be dropped in, as had been the plan. Why? Because over the top of that slab, so the holes that have been left, huge 15 metre by 15 metre holes in our slab, need to be filled in. Why? Because I need to build the widened Great Western Main Line on top of that. So, by the middle of 2025, I need to seal that slab. After that point, we don't have an ability to drop TBMs in. So they will go in the ground as per the original plan and then metaphorically be wrapped in cling film. They'll be ready to go when there is a funding decision to go to Euston. Um, now that's a bit of an issue. I mean, will this station be capable of uh, being the terminus for HS2? Because although it was always intended as the temporary terminus, it wasn't intended to be a long-term terminus. But that's right. We've got no concerns over capacity, passenger capacity within the station complex. We've got a capacity of up to 250,000 people that we can handle every day at the completed Old Oak Common Superhub. We're going to get nowhere near that in the first phase of the opened railway. So it's only when you're running services upwards to Manchester, onto the Great Western Mainland, upwards to Sheffield, etc., that actually you get to the stage whereby numbers at Old Oak Common, passenger numbers, might become an issue. So we'll get nowhere near the, uh, the design capacity for the complex. But you only be able to offer a service that is essentially uh, Old Oak Common to Curzon Street? Yeah, that, that's phase one. Situation is we'll have six. We'll only have six platforms here, so only having six platforms at the London terminus will always constrain how far north you can go. So you can't build. There's no. There's no denying it. There's no. There's no ability to to build the whole system to the north of the country with only six platforms in London. So uh, obviously. Um, you know, you're, you're dependent on Euston being completed at some point. Uh, you don't think that the project might stop at Old Oak Common and just be a sort of uh, Acton to Aston sort of line? I've never heard the Acton to Aston phraseology, but I quite like it. Uh, um, there is no way that I could visualise the railway never going to uh, Euston. I've been building railways uh, not dissimilar to this for the last 33 years. This will be the ninth railway I'll be part of opening. Every single one of those has been built in phases, whether it's DLR, Docklands Light Railway, through the Royal Docks, whether it's Jubilee Line, HS1, the original build, Crossrail, all have opened with an initial inaugural service. HS2 is no different to that. Phase 1, Acton to Aston, as you brilliantly describe it, is the first phase, the foundation upon which to open subsequent phases. Right, so uh, give me an idea of when the public might be able to see bits of this or uh, experience bits of it, when, when bits are opening. Uh, for example, I understand that the, uh, uh, the, the tunnel uh, westwards of here is going to be opened up quite soon. 
so, so th there's no doubt that we want to show as many people what's happening behind the hoardings as we can. We already run uh, resident uh, uh, um, um, visits, so we're very keen to show off what we're doing to our local community. We are part, you know, we have 10 years, we are part of the community in West London. So we're already doing that. We will widen that, I think, in terms of, if you look at Open House, fantastic uh, 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 um, thing that happens in London every autumn. We will take part in, in Open House as we go, as we go forward. Uh, in relation to opening for a passenger railway service, there'll be two openings. And the plan right now is they happen at the same time on the same day. We will open the HS2 service and have passengers flooding in from the north, from Birmingham, and going northwards as well. Separately, the eight platforms on the conventional Great Western Main Line will open. There is no way that we will open the HS2 service unless the conventional station is complete. Why? You can't take people from here into central London uh, through any form of bus replacement or whatever. So it's a one-way street, it's a one-way journey. The other way, of course, if we're not opening HS2 yet, if there are, for whatever reason, we're not opening to Birmingham, but the conventional eight-platform station is ready, the 42nd station on the Elizabeth Line, we will open it. It becomes a community asset, it becomes a massive interchange opportunity for anybody travelling in from the, uh, from the east, so, sorry, from the west, uh, the southwest, and from the west of the country. So if we are able to open the conventional station earlier, then the HS2 service is ready, we will do that. So um, uh, what are dates? I mean, the dates are for HS2 is 2031, I think. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're so could that be earlier than the Jubilee? So, so we, we have... Sorry, the um, Crossrail. The, 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 yeah, yeah. The, so, so, the Elizabeth Line. We've learned the lesson from, from Crossrail, where, where the opening date for Crossrail was, was pinpointed as a Sunday morning at about T-10 years. December the 9th, 2018. There yes. we go. And, 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 and that wasn't achieved. We've we learned the lesson from that. We have a four-year opening window. Tremendous numbers of things have to happen to hit uh, uh, a date, so therefore we have that four-year window. We're well within that now. That is 29 to 33. If we are able, as I said earlier, if we're able to open the conventional element earlier to give that interchange arrangement, we'll absolutely do that. So people might get a, uh, a station before they get HS2. Uh, that, that's very true. They might get an ability to access that 40-second station on Elizabeth right. Line, ability to interchange between uh, Elizabeth Line and Great Western uh, before there is a HS2 service arriving at Old Oak. Yes, absolutely. If we're able to do that, we will do that. Uh, obviously, HS2 is, as you know, somewhat controversial. And one of the controversies is over uh, the fact that it's, uh, the, the cost of it has undoubtedly gone up. Do you see reasons why the costs have, have gone up? The, the complexity of a high-speed railway uh, to a standard that's never been delivered in the UK before brings its own uh, uh, levels of, of cost, levels of cost challenge. Uh, for me, actually what we're doing here on Phase 1, Acton to Aston, it's a foundation for a much, much bigger railway. So I think lots of people are looking at the Phase 1 cost as a standalone railway in its entirety. Actually, it's a foundation stone for the bigger, wider railway. And the benefits to be derived, you know, it's a 30-year delivery. We're in year nine of a 30-year scheme. The benefits to be derived from those services to Glasgow, the services to Sheffield, actually give a business case that actually make the investment look really attractive. 
if you look at it in the long-term context. Uh, and, and, you know, take ourselves back 100 plus years, uh, that's what the Victorians did. So the vast majority, you know this far better than me, uh, you're the expert, not me on this one. The Victorian era of investment in rail took a long-term strategy. The vast majority of the infrastructure in the UK today is Victorian infrastructure. We shouldn't be looking this at this as a six to eight to nine year project, because then it does look quite expensive. When you look at it in that long term way, actually, that's when the investment becomes far more attractive. So you're optimistic, uh, just to round off that, you know, we will get, uh, possibly not in my lifetime, uh, but uh, certainly in my children's lifetime, a, a, an amazing railway that will cover much of the UK. Uh, absolutely. And I expect you and I to be on the first train. I will uh, certainly uh, come with you if, it, uh, if I'm still around. Thank you. Here's Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Uh, well, as we've been discussing uh, HS2, uh, and of course, uh, since our, our recording a couple of weeks ago, uh, there's been further developments. There's now talk of actually scrapping the scheme north of Birmingham. In other words, it would leave just what I've called the Acton to Aston line um, and pretty much uh, nothing else. And although the government has denied this, apparently uh, Richie Sunak and his Chancellor Jeremy Hunt have uh, at least considered this as a possibility. Now, my view uh, is that they can't possibly abandon the first bit. I mean, having been down to those sites and seen the amount of construction, they can't just leave uh, those structures in place. Uh, you know, it, it would be completely, uh, both politically and practically impossible. But they could scrap uh, the, the rest of it. They would apparently save some £30 billion. Uh, it would mean, though, that uh, the line would be pretty useless. It would just be a fast line, you know, from West London to uh, central Birmingham, um, saving some time. But actually, you know, the old trains would still operate from Euston. It would be completely pointless. And I've written a piece uh, for the independent kind of setting this out. And indeed, setting out the fact that, you know, if Labour wins as the election, as expected, they're going to face a big dilemma over this because they can't be seen to scrap this northern section. On the other hand, do they really want to pay the money to uh, actually build it? And, uh, you know, they're going to be in a very difficult place. So they might well be laughing at the Tories' discomfiture over uh, the situation at the moment. But um, when they get into power, they're going to face some very big issues. Calling All Stations, the transport podcast with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamas Limited production. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, do consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod.